Okay, uh, praise be to God and uh, good morning to everyone. Let me just check this here. Good morning to everyone. I hope you all can hear me, especially those at the back, Joby, Ronnie. Yes, okay, great. All right, so uh, as we all know, we have been doing the whole counsel of God from last January, and uh, we made our way through various books of the Bible. And now we've come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So we will have a two-part series on Revelation this week and the next week. And the week after, George Chine will come and wrap it all up with uh, a summary message of what we studied in the whole Council of God. So we wrap the series now. So three more messages today, next week, and the week after. But I want you all to give me your undivided attention, please. Uh, because of what we're going to study today. And we'll try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, although we all know that it's a tough book and it's a mysterious book for us to understand. And I just want to thank uh, Brother John for coming and reading the scripture for us and also for praying for me and also uh, Gudubaya, as we lovingly call him, and his two sons for coming and singing a song that is apt for the message today that he is coming in clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierce him and all the ends of the earth shall moan because of him, even so, amen. In the year 1939, when the World War began, World War II began, Winston Churchill, the former prime minister of Britain, he described the former Soviet Union this way. He said, the Soviet Union is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Several Christians, although they don't use the exact same words, they think of the book of Revelation the same way. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But they're not entirely wrong because it is a mystery. It's a mystery because it's filled with visions and strange and astonishing imagery throughout the book. So we have a mountain that's burning that is falling into the sea, and we have a beast coming out of the sea, we have another beast coming out of the earth, and we have a dragon, a red dragon, chasing a woman, etc., etc. So all these kinds of imageries are in the book of Revelation. So how are we to understand all of this? Added to this, when people understand that there are too many interpretations to the book of Revelation, they give up right at the outset and prefer to avoid the book altogether. Others, in fact, other Christians say that the book is not relevant to us at all. Apart from the many reasons that could be given, there is one crucial reason for believers to pay attention to this book and study the book. Revelation is the last communication, the last word that Jesus gave to the church as part of the canon. So at least for that reason, we need to study the book. But also, there is a specific reason. In chapter 1, verse 3, the book promises a blessing to everybody who reads it, everybody who keeps it, and everybody who lives by it. Look at what Revelation 1, 3 says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is at hand, or for the time is near. So the book is promising a blessing to everybody who reads it and who studies it. Let me set for us the context of the book of Revelation so we understand it better. The book of Revelation was written to first century churches in Asia Minor. You know, it's in yellow here. This is Asia Minor. And they are in the specific order given to us in the book of Revelation because of the way they appeared on a trade route. Uh, I didn't draw the trade route, but this is the way it goes, right from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. They appear in that order on a trade route, and that's why that's the order in which it is written to us in the book of Revelation. And although they are historical churches during the time of John when he was writing the book, they represent churches of all time because of the promises given to them. And the promises given to the churches are promises given to all the churches of all time. And in their setting, the Roman Empire was dominant at that time. And the seven little churches were facing external persecution. 
and also seduction from the influence of the Roman culture. And also from within, there was spiritually, spiritual lethargy that was rising up inside the churches. And the book of Revelation that was written to them showed them, and therefore it shows us as well, how to live victoriously in the midst of torment and temptation. How to live victoriously in the midst of torment and temptation from culture. John, who's also called the Revelator because he's writing the book of Revelation, John was banished to a small island called the Isle of Patmos. You see that here, right? This is the island of Patmos. And he was banished there during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And in about 95 AD, he wrote the book of Revelation as a message of hope to the churches. And his message in summary is this. No matter how dreary things are, no matter how discouraging and disappointing things could get, Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. It's always best to understand the structure of a book before we get into the study of it, because that will help us understand the outline and the argument of the writer better. And that's a challenge for many people, especially when it comes to the book of Revelation. And the reason is, how do you find the structure of a book that is just a collection of images and visions? But I want to begin this morning by encouraging all of us that it's not that difficult as people make it to be to find the structure of the book of Revelation. There are, in fact, in the book of Revelation, indicators of transition. Now, hear me, please, very carefully. In the book of Revelation, there are indicators of transition, transition from one thought to another. And these indicators of transition are visions that John wrote in various sections of the book. These are visions that John wrote in various sections of the book. And they are key transitions to the argument and the flow of the book. And we will see some of them this week and next week. And I hope under God's grace, all of us will be able to appreciate the book of Revelation and how much it means to us as we live today in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a basic outline of the book of Revelation. When we look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, we see the inspired, natural, authoritative outline given by the author himself. What does the verse say? By the way, I want you all to keep your Bibles open, please. Uh, open your Bibles. We'll go chapter by chapter because I know several of us may not be as familiar with the book of Revelation as we are with the rest of the Bible. So please keep your Bibles open so that we can understand what we're talking about here. So Revelation 1 and verse 19. Write, write is a command given to John. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So the verse itself is giving us an authoritative and natural outline of the book. It can be largely divided into three sections. Look at this. The things that you have seen, which is the vision of Christ, the past vision in chapter one. The things that are, the things that are present to the time of John, the present condition of the churches. And then the things that are to take place after this, which is the future expectation from John's time. So the past vision is given to us in chapter one. That is the first major division of the book. Then the second major division is the things that are during the time of John, which is chapters two and three. He speaks to the seven churches of Asia. And then things that are the future go all the way from chapter four to chapter 22, which is the future expectation or the futuristic things that are going to come. This is the largest section of the book. So we don't have to worry or struggle about dividing this book. The book itself gives a natural outline. John, the writer, is giving us in Revelation 1.19 that he's writing about or he's been commanded to write about the things that he has seen, chapter 1, the things that are in his time, chapters 2 and 3, and the things that are to take place after these things, chapters 4 through 22. All right? When you break this down a little further, we see that there's a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and we'll talk a little more about that. And then there's a vision of Christ, the past vision, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Then the second section of the book in chapters 2 and 3, you see the present condition of the churches. 
And the future expectation is given to us from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way till chapter 22 and verse 5. And it finishes up with an epilogue in chapter 22, verse 6, all the way to verse 21. The reason I'm giving you this is because as we move from prologue into the epilogue, like I said, there are indicators of transition, and we must discern them and understand them and see how the book is, a book is moving from prologue into the epilogue, all right? So I will be pausing once in a while and asking, you know, are you all here? Because I know, <laughs> I know, I know it's difficult to uh, do the book of Revelation in one conscious setting. By that I mean, while people remain conscious. So, uh, so, so I'll be pausing here or there to, to ask you if you're conscious and if you're listening here, because it's the book of Revelation. I hope you're all here, right? Okay, since we have a basic outline, we look at what is the theme of the book of Revelation, and we must understand this. Hear me, please. In the prologue in chapter 1, verse 7, the prologue begins this way. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the families of the earth, all the tribes of the earth shall wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John, in explaining this, right at the outset, right in the prologue itself, he is conflating, or, or let's just say, he's merging for us two uh, Old Testament prophecies uh, from Daniel chapter 7 and also from Zechariah chapter 12, that the whole human race will witness the coming of Christ. The whole human race, every eye will see him. Jesus is coming, and the whole human race will witness the coming of Christ, and all the families of the earth will mourn at his return because of the severity of the punishment that's going to be inflicted upon them as they are wicked and unbelieving. He's coming. So right at the outset, the book sets the tone. He's coming. Jesus is coming. The next section, chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says this, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So even in the second section of the book, the theme, once again, is highlighted that he's coming. Jesus is coming. The third section of the book, the larger section that I talked about, in chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So the theme is repeated and highlighted here also, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Again, in the same section, you have two cities that John talks about, and I'll talk about it very briefly this week, and next week I'll elaborate on that. In chapter 17, you see the city of Babylon. You see religious Babylon in chapter 17 and commercial or political Babylon in chapter 18. In chapter 21, you have New Jerusalem. So chapter 17, Babylon, chapter 21, New Jerusalem. And in between these two chapters, in chapter 19, you have the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the heavens are cracked open. Jesus comes back with his kingdom, and he establishes the millennial reign. So there you have, once again, the theme highlighted that Jesus is coming. And finally, the epilogue of the book three times highlights the same theme. Chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12 of the same chapter. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So three times over in the epilogue, as the book finishes, it is highlighted, it is emphasized, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. This is what the book is all about, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to return. Dear brothers and sisters, let me speak to you personally here. Though you and I have not seen him, we love him. Though you and I don't see him now, we believe in him. And the scoffers might come and say, that where is the promise of his coming? Things have been the same from of old. Things have been going on at the same way. There is nothing that's changing. Where is the promise of his return? But you and I know that he who has promised will surely fulfill it. 
And this book expands for us the hope that is held out for us in every book of the New Testament, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to come. Jesus for sure is going to return. So Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. So we can understand this book, and even if we don't understand some image or some vision in between, and nobody does, Nobody who's teaching even in the best of seminaries understands every single thing that the book has to say, but people have their own views about it for sure. So even if we don't understand every single image and every single uh, symbol there, we do know that all of these line up to one theme, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Now, we mentioned in our sermon on the rapture, that for the one single event called the second coming, there are two aspects to it, or there are two phases to it. There are two phases or two aspects to the second coming. The first aspect is called the, called the rapture, right? So that's where Jesus comes in the air and the church is caught up to be with him and he takes the church away to heaven. And that is the end of the church age. That is a blessed hope. That's what we are looking forward to. That's the first phase of the second coming. Then you have the second aspect of the second phase of the second coming, which is called the second coming of the second advent, when he will return to the earth with the church to establish the millennial kingdom. But between these two phases or aspects of the second coming, there is a seven-year tribulation period. It is also called the day of the Lord. It is also called the 70th week of Daniel and also called the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble. And the book of Revelation, in its futuristic section, which is from chapters 4 through 22, expounds much about the tribulation period or the day of the Lord. So the entire book of Revelation is expanding for us the days leading up to the return of Christ. What happens in the days leading up to the return of Christ, especially in the last seven years before his return, and then what happens after he comes and establishes his reign. Yes, we're all here? Clear so far? Okay, that's good. So we'll move to a basic preliminary survey of the book of Revelation. I want to show you a chronological flow of the book of Revelation. Now, please look at this slide very carefully. It took me about one and a half hours to make this single slide. So, <laughs> so I want you all to look at this very carefully. So this gives us a chronology of the book of Revelation. Please open the Bible to chapter one, and we'll go step by step into the book, and we'll understand what the Lord has to say to us this morning. And by the way, I will emphasize only on the first 12 chapters this week. For the next, uh, the next week, we'll look at chapters 13 through 22, but I'll also give you before that uh, a brief overview of the book of Revelation so we understand it. Chapter one. So after a brief prologue, John recounts for us the vision of the one who's coming. The vision of the one who's coming. So he sees Christ in all of his glory, in all of his magnificence, and he falls down in worship. And Jesus, in response to that, he comforts him and he gives him strength. Here's the point. When the church has a proper view of who Christ is, when the church has a proper vision of who Christ is, it can endure any opposition. When CBF all of us together have a proper view of Christ. When we understand who Christ is in all of his glory, in all of his excellence and magnificence, you and I can face any opposition from without. So the book begins with such an encouragement and such a vision. That's chapter one for us. You can see the outline there, right? Chapter one, the things that have you. The next section is chapters two and three. They mark the second major division of the book, moving from things that were to things that are, things that are present to the time of John. So John is moving from the vision that he had of Christ to the churches of Asia Minor that existed in the time of John. Now, these churches, seven of them, were pretty much like churches of today that were in some way or the other struggling with external influences, influences of evil from outside. And Jesus is walking among the churches, and he's saying one important thing to each of them. I know who you are. I know who you are. 
So it is by looking at Christ who knows the churches, who knows the struggles of the churches, who knows what's happening in each and every church. It is by looking at Christ that the church is able to endure suffering and emerge triumphant. It is by looking at Christ that the church is able to endure any suffering and emerge triumphant. So here is the message again. As he talks to the churches, the message comes through once again. No matter how dreary things look for the moment, no matter how discouraging things will get, no matter how disappointing things are with the rulers of your time, Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will change everything. Now, this sets up for us the next section of the book, the longest or the largest section of the book, the things that are to take place, which is from chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 21. But I've broken that up as well, and uh, we will go step by step. So in chapters 4 and 5, we see two significant events that are happening. Number one, in chapter 4, John is allowed to have a peep or a peek into heaven. He is given a vision of heaven, a glorious vision. We'll talk a little about that. That's in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, we see that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is worthy to open the scrolls. We'll talk about what the scrolls are a little later when we come to that. So in chapter 4, John is given a vision of heaven. He's asked to come up and he's asked to see what's happening from heaven's perspective. It is immensely significant that when John peeped through the open door, the first thing that he saw in heaven was a throne. The first thing that he saw in heaven was a throne. It is a symbol of sovereignty. It is a symbol of the faithfulness of the covenant God. It is a symbol of majesty. It is a symbol of the kingly rule of God. No matter what is happening on earth, from heaven's perspective, there is a throne. And God is on the throne. He is in control of everything. He's in control of everything. So his vision has a strong Old Testament background to it. Remember, Ezekiel saw the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 1. Remember, Daniel saw the same thing in Daniel chapter 7 when they were given visions in the Old Testament. The churches of Asia Minor were small and they were struggling. And the might of Rome seemed invincible to them. What could a few defenseless Christians do if a Roman law were to banish them from the face of the earth? Already the powers of darkness seem to be closing in on them. And yet the good news is they need not fear. They need not fear. Why? Because at the center of the universe stands a throne. It is that throne that gives orders to and controls even the highest of galaxies and even the planets and everything that's happening on earth. It is a throne from which even the smallest of living organisms draws life. So he's in control of everything. That gives John some comfort as he sees the throne in chapter 4. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures. I don't want to expand on that or interpret that for you. But personally, you can come and talk to the elders what they think about it. Uh, so there are four living creatures there around the throne. And whenever these living creatures fall down in worship and give glory to God, the 24 elders also they cast their crowns before God and they fall down in worship before the one who lives forever and ever, the eternal one. So that's the, that's the scene in chapter 4. In chapter 5, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is worthy to be opening the scrolls. Now, what is the scroll that is in the hand of God that Jesus Christ, our Lord, takes from the hand of God? The seven sealed scroll, now the scroll has seven seals, okay? So the seven sealed scroll presents the decrees of God's will regarding how the kingdom is going to be consummated. It presents the decrees of God's will regarding how the kingdom is going to come to an end and be fulfilled. In the Old Testament, there are several mysteries about the kingdom. But all of that is going to come to fulfillment and all of that is going to come to be revealed right now as John is going to see. And just as John was promised, you will see in the rest of the chapters, God giving us how the consummation is going to come. But before we move further, there's something important that we need to take note of. Now, listen to me very carefully, please. From chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, that, those chapters cover the period of tribulation on earth. Chapter 6 through chapter 19. These events are tribulation events. 
And they described in chapter six, uh, seal judgments. In chapter six, we are given the seal judgments. In chapters eight and nine, we're given trumpet judgments. And chapter 16, we are given the bowl judgments. Now hear me very carefully, please. In chapter six through 19, we are given a description of the events during the tribulation period. Okay, And there are three types of judgments that are poured out during the tribulation period. The first set is the seven seals. And the next set, uh, the first set comes in chapter six. The next set is seven trumpets, seven trumpet judgments. They come in chapters eight and nine. And then the last set is called the bowl judgments. And they come in chapter 16. Now, I want you all to hear me very carefully, please. These judgments form the chronological backbone of the book of Revelation. These judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, they form the chronological backbone of the book of Revelation, and they follow one another sequentially. So seal one comes before seal two, and the trumpets come after the seals, and the bowls come after the trumpets. So they form a chronological backbone of the book of Revelation, and they follow one another sequentially. What about the other chapters? We just said that the judgments are only in chapter 6, chapters 8 and 9, and chapter 16. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. What about the other chapters? Now, if we understand this, we can study the book of Revelation well. So listen very carefully, please. What about the other chapters? The other chapters give us very important information about the key players in the drama of the end times. The other chapters give us key information about the key players and the key events involved in the end times before the coming of Christ. And some of them give it from the standpoint of earth and some of them give it from the standpoint of heaven. So let me recap this once again for us. Chapter six through 19 is a tribulation period covered in the book of Revelation, right? And there are three series of judgments that are given poured out on earth. The first series is called the seals judgment. The next series is the trumpets judgment. And the last series is the bowls judgment, seven each, right? So all of them are poured out between chapter six and 19, and then you have the coming of Christ to establish the kingdom. So God's wrath is being poured out in the form of these judgments upon the wicked of the earth, the earth dwellers. And these progress for us, the chronology of the book of Revelation. So they form a chronological background for the book of Revelation, and they sequentially follow one after the other. They come one after the other sequentially. What about the other chapters? The other chapters give us significant information about the key players, key events, and key circumstances of the book for us to understand what else is happening in the book of Revelation, but they don't progress the narrative forward. That's important to understand. Only the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls progress the narrative forward. The rest of the chapters give us key information about what's happening about the key players. So there is a chronological progression from seals to the trumpets to the bowls. Clear so far? Yes, no, maybe. Right, okay. The next one, this is important. The nature of the progression from seals to trumpets to the bowls, okay? There is a chronological sequence. The nature of progression from seals to the trumpets to the bowls is called telescopic arrangement. Now there are several things that people say, there are several arrangements that people give. This is what I have understood and I've taught over the years. So this is, this is called a telescopic arrangement. In this arrangement, the seventh seal consists of the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet consists of the seven bowls. So when the seventh seal is open, the seven trumpets come out. When the seventh trumpet is open, the seven bowls come out, which means uh, the seven trumpets are included in the seventh seal. The seven bowls are included in the seventh trumpet. This is called a telescopic arrangement. So as you open the telescope section by section, you will see the thing, the entire thing coming out. So there are seven seals. The seventh seal, as it's opened, it consists of seven trumpets. And as the seven trumpets run their course, when you open the seventh, or oh, sorry, when you blow the seventh trumpet, what comes out is the seven bowls. So this is called a telescopic arrangement, and we need to understand 
the chronological progression in the narrative. Again, the rest of the chapters only add information about the key players like Antichrist, what is he doing? The beast, what is he doing? So all these things, but they don't progress the narrative forward, right? Okay, so we'll go to chapter six now, coming back to the chronology. In chapter six, we see the first set of judgments and they're called the seal judgments. The lamb breaks the seals one by one because he's the only one in the entire universe who's been found worthy to break the seals. And he opens them one by one. And there is an outpouring of God's wrath that takes different forms as he opens each seal. And we look at that. The first one, the first seal, as he opens it, introduces to the world a conqueror. And some people call him the Antichrist as well. I'm okay with that. So he's the conqueror who comes to delude the people. That's the first seal. I don't want to expand too much on this. Just a basic overview, all right? You can go back and study the book of Revelation. The second one, as he opens, it pictures war and bloodshed. It pictures war and bloodshed. It's a red horse, actually. The third one describes a famine, picturing death also, but it's primarily a famine with a black horse. The fourth one proclaims death over one-fourth of the earth. So one-fourth of population, death is proclaimed over them. When the fifth seal is open, there is screams of martyrs who are killed during this time for their testimony in Jesus Christ, for the testimony about Jesus Christ. So the martyrs are killed and they plead for vindication. How long, O Lord, they cry out and God comforts them and says, wait till the end. Everything is going to be all right. And then the sixth one describes cosmic upheaval. So six seals, one after the other, and we progress through uh, the narrative into further things. So the seal judgments, if you look at it, the seal judgments cover the first half of the tribulation period. You see that, right? Six seals. So the seal judgments cover the first half of the tribulation period. And their purpose is to strike fear into the hearts of men who are wicked, that God is pouring out these judgments upon them because they did not repent. They did not turn to God. So chapter six closes with the sixth seal and the seventh seal is not open until chapter eight, okay? The chapter six closes with six seals and chapter eight, is the one where you have the seventh seal that is open. Now, here is what is important. Chapter seven does not progress the chronology further. It is an interlude. Like I said, the other chapters give further information about what is happening. So in such parenthetical sections, the chronological order is halted to develop in more detail some aspects of the end time period that give information about a key player or a key event or a key circumstance. There are two visions that are given to John between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Two visions that are given to John. Now, please go back to chapter six and verse 17. I want you all to turn there, please. Chapter six and verse 17. There's a question that is asked there. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? The great day of the wrath has come. Who can stand is a question that is raised. Now, looking at the nature of judgments that one-fourth of the population is wiped out, there is famine, there is death. When you look at the six seal judgments, the question that comes to our mind is, really, who can stand? Is there anybody who can be delivered physically, much less spiritually saved? Do you think anybody can be saved? And the answer is given to us in chapter 7. In the midst of judgment, God remembers mercy. You have in the Indian notation of things, 1,44,000 Jews who are specially sealed to protect them from the effects of the trumpet judgments that are going to come in the second part of the tribulation period as they witness for Christ. So these 1,44,000 Jews are specially sealed by God and protected from the trumpet judgments that are going to come in the second part of the tribulation period. And they will be protected from the wrath of God the trumpet judgments that are going to be poured out as they go and witness around the world for Christ. So 12,000 from each tribe of Israel has been selected. I know the tribe of Dan is not there. There's a reason for that. We don't want to get into that. But 12,000 from each tribe, 1,44,000 are specially sealed evangelists who are protected by God. 
when God pours out the trumpet judgments upon the whole world in the second part of the tribulation. You see the T's there, right? The TTT, the seven, the, the trumpet judgments, the second part of the tribulation period, they go around the world and they preach the gospel. That's the first image that is given, the first group. The second vision that is given to John in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7, is that just like the first group of 1,44,000, there is another group that is also unhurt by all the judgments that have been poured out, the effects of the wrath of God. But they are unhurt for a different reason. They've died and they've passed on to glory. So death has protected them from the wrath of God. And if you ask the question, are these only 1,44,000 people who are, who've you know, maintained their composure during the seal judgments and kept themselves pure? The answer is no, there's a great multitude. But the point is, they've passed on to glory uh, through death and they are in the very presence of God. So these two in the midst of all these seal judgments, these two visions as an interlude gives comfort to John that God in the midst of judgment is remembering mercy. God is remembering mercy. There are evangelists going around in the world preaching the gospel still. And there are people coming by the multitudes to know Christ even in the midst of judgment. Is that clear? Chapter 7? Okay, we'll move forward. Uh, in chapter 8, the chronological progression of the judgments resumes. And the lamb breaks the seventh seal. What happens? Immediately, there is silence in heaven for a space of half an hour. There is silence in heaven for half an hour. What is this silence? This silence is a preparatory silence. Let me explain this. Now, John has been seeing a swift movement of judgments. Seal 1, seal 2, seal 3. And all of that, there's an interlude given. And seventh seal is opened by the Lamb, and all of a sudden, everything comes to a standstill. There is silence in heaven for half an hour. It is a preparatory silence. What do I mean by that? It is a hushed expectation that the judgments that are about to begin, which is the trumpet judgments, are much more severe than the seal judgments. So there is a silence for half an hour as an expectation, as a preparatory silence for the more severe, more intense judgments that are going to begin. So if you remember, we said that the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, right? So when the seventh seal is open, uh, the silence is to prepare us for the seven intense trumpets judgments that are going to come. Now, we place the first six seals in the first part of the tribulation period. So the first trumpet judgment will come early in the first second part of the tribulation period. And the trumpet judgments will cover almost the entire second leg or the second half of the tribulation period. And so we have in chapters 8 and 9 uh, a detailed account of the six trumpet judgments. And remember, trumpets always come before the king comes. Trumpets always are blown before the king comes. Now look at the trumpet judgments. I'll go very briefly. The first trumpet is blown and it destroys a third of the earth's vegetation. Look at chapter 8 and verse 7, please. Turn to chapter 8, please. You will follow along. Chapter 8 and verse 7. The trumpet, the first trumpet destroys a third of the earth's vegetation. The second trumpet destroys a third of the sea and its life. Even ships are destroyed. The third trumpet destroys the inland waters, fresh waters. The fourth trumpet destroys a third of the celestial bodies. These are then followed by the announcement of three woes because the last three trumpets are very severe, are very intense, and that, therefore they're called three woes. The fifth trumpet, which is the first woe, as it's blown, it brings out demonic locusts in order to torment the wicked people on earth. So demonic locusts come out and they torment the wicked people on earth. That's chapter 9 and verse 12. The sixth trumpet is blown which is the second woe, there are four angels that are released to kill, a, to kill one third of the human race. Four angels that are released to kill one third of the human race. Now, imagine what's happening here. One fourth of the population is being swept out. One third of the population is being killed. It's massive destruction. It's a massive cataclysmic outpouring of God's wrath. And yet, if you look at chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, we see the response of those who remain on earth. They do not repent. Their hearts are hardened, even in the midst of such judgments. 
beginning with chapter 10, extending all the way through chapter 11, verse 14. Uh, here, this section, this is an interlude again after the sixth trumpet, okay? So there's an interlude section between the judgments. Again, this does not chronologically move the narrative forward of the tribulation events, but this is descriptive. It gives further details about the main key players and the key events. So just as the two uh, vision interlude precedes the seventh seal, there's a two vision interlude that precedes the seventh trumpet as well. Remember between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there were two visions given to uh, John. So between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet now, there are two more visions that are gonna be given to John. Now listen very carefully, please. In chapter 10 verses one through 11, you have the vision of a mighty angel handing John over with a little scroll. I'll talk about that. Then there's a second vision of temple that he's gonna measure and two witnesses that are associated with the temple. These are two visions that are given between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is also called the third woe. Again, like I said, this section does not uh, explain any judgments on the earth dwellers, but it consoles believers by, by reiterating God's role that he is sovereign over the affairs of mankind and God is sovereignly taking things forward. He is not only judging the wicked, but he is also favoring, granting favor to those who belong to him, to those who are really his. So the first of that is a scroll that John is asked to take from a mighty angel. And he takes the scroll and he's asked to eat. And as he eats the scroll, he finds it like honey in his mouth. But as it goes into his stomach, he finds it bitter and it churns his stomach. What does that mean? It means that when God talks about these judgments that are going to come and how these judgments are going to lead to the consummation and the establishment of the kingdom, it is beautiful news to John immediately. Oh Lord, yes, the consummation is going to come. The Lord is going to establish the kingdom. So immediately the news is so beautiful, it's sweet to his mouth. But as he begins to digest it, before the consummation comes, there are a lot of judgments, apostasies, persecutions that are going to come. So it's bitter in his stomach. That's the imagery there. Okay, that's the first one. But before we move further, I want you all please to look at your Bibles to chapter 10, verse 11, which is a great transition indicator in the book of Revelation. Chapter 10 and verse 11, John is specifically told this, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You must prophesy again about many peoples and languages and kings. So hold this thought, please. I'll explain a little more about this in two minutes, but hold this thought. John is asked to prophesy again and prophesy further. The next section, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. John is asked to measure the inner temple, and he is specifically told not to measure the outer coat of the temple. The inner temple, the altar, signifies God's protection or God's favor over people who worship him, who belong to him. So God's favor is given to those who worship him and belong to him. But that which belongs to the Gentiles, God's favor is not upon it. And they will trample the city of Jerusalem underfoot in the second part of the tribulation. That is a Gentile area. But let me make a comment here. This tells us that a literal temple will exist in the years before the return of Christ in Jerusalem. There is no temple right now. But for the temple to be measured, there must be a literal temple there in Jerusalem in the days uh, leading up to the return of Christ. So measuring is a symbol of God's favor. God has taken note of those who faithfully worship him around the altar during the tribulation days. And not measuring the outer court symbolizes God's disapproval of anything that belongs to the Gentiles because of their desecration of the holy city. Now, this distinction between God's favor of his people and God's not favoring of the Gentiles who are wicked, this is clearly seen in the two witnesses who are associated with the sanctuary and the altar. Okay, so these two witnesses are sent out and you know the rest of the story. I don't want to expand too much on that. They die and they rise again and they ascend into heaven, right? That shows us that God's mercy is clearly there. Because when they see the restoration, the, uh, the resurrection of these two people and the transition of the two people, many people give glory to God. 
So the two witnesses also bring a lot of people to the Lord. That shows God's mercy in chapter 11. There are two numbers mentioned there, 42 months and 1,260 days. 42 months, 1,260 days. These two are pretty much the same, which is the three and a half years of tribulation. It's talking about the second half of the tribulation period. That's when the two witnesses will minister. All right. Uh, that's what it's talking about. Let me just recap a point here and point out where we are in the drama of the events. Okay. We are right here between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And here is the interlude we are talking about. We are right here between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Everything has been moving in a sequence so far. You had the seal judgments, and then you had the seventh, uh, you had the uh, trumpet judgment. But before the seventh trumpet, after the sixth trumpet, there is a pause, right? There is a pause, and John is told that he must prophesy again. He must prophesy again. Why? Because, the, sorry, because the trumpets bring us right to the end. The trumpets bring us right to the end. Let me show you the other one here. Uh, one second. The trumpets bring us right to the end and everything has been moving in a sequence and we are right there almost in the kingdom. We are right there in the kingdom and John might think we are in the kingdom, but John is, John is told, pause there. You must prophesy again. Now, there's a seventh trumpet that is given in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Look at chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And when it sounds, when the seventh trumpet sounds, there's a hallelujah chorus that breaks forth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. When does this happen? When the seventh trumpet is blown, there's a hallelujah chorus, and the kingdom of our Lord Sorry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So we are right there in the kingdom. But John is told to wait. John is told to wait. He's going to have to prophesy once again. What is the prophecy about? John is told, yes, we are almost in the kingdom. The kingdom of, the, of this world has become the kingdom of Lord and his Christ. And yet there is more prophecy that you need to do. Why? There are more judgments coming up and John doesn't know that. Before we get into the kingdom, there are more judgments that you need to prophesy about. And John will be given more revelation. And that's what we have in the second part of the book. Now hear me please very carefully. And I'll just take 10 more minutes and I'll finish. Listen please. From chapters 11 through 16, hear me please. Chapters 11 through 16. There is a narrative that is running across that we must discern to understand the book of Revelation. Are you all here, please? Chapters 11 through 16, there's a narrative, one strand that is running through that we must understand to clearly appreciate the book of Revelation. It is the narrative of the beast. Okay, hear me, please. It's the narrative about the beast. I don't have time to compare this with the book of Daniel and the visions there. This is not a college. We just have 45 minutes. So, but when you have time, go and compare that with the book of Daniel and the visions that he had, all right? So from chapters 11 through 16, there's a narrative running across, and that is about, that is about uh, the beast, okay? Let me give you an illustration for us to understand this. We have a Google map here. I've uh, plotted it between MG Road Metro Station and WCOI, where we are right now, okay? So there is a straight road that you see from a certain this from a certain height. So from a certain height, you only see a straight road there. But when you zoom in, especially closer to WCOI, what is there? You will see all these apartments, all these restaurants, and all these uh, different monuments showing up. Why? Because we've zoomed into it. That's exactly what's happening in this part of the book of Revelation, chapters 11 through 16. John is asked to zoom in to what's happening during the tribulation period. Yes, the judgments are going on, but as you zoom in, there is one individual who's rising up in power. One person who's standing up, trying to establish his own kingdom. And he has his cohorts, he has his allies, and he is called the Antichrist. That's what you get in chapters 11 through 16 as you zoom in. In chapter 13, you have the beast. And in chapter 16, you have the expectation 
of the doom as well of the Antichrist. Is that clear? Yes. Chapters 11 through 16, they zoom in and give more details about especially the Antichrist. Coming back to the chronology, the last chapter that we'll deal with today. Chapter 12 gives another explanatory portion of the revelation. It gives a description of the war that's going on behind the scenes. There is persecution of, of the Jews in the physical world, in the world that we live in. There's a Holocaust happening, and there's a lot of persecution that has gone on in the entire history of the Jews. But there is a spiritual warfare behind all these things in the spiritual realm. And that is, Satan is behind all these things because Satan hates Israel. Why does Satan hate Israel? Satan hates Israel because they are the source of the Messiah. And so the woman represents national Israel. The red dragon represents Satan. And the male child represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And the warfare happens first on earth. Then it shifts to heaven with Michael and the angels. And then it comes, uh, then, then it comes back on earth. In this, we also see the anticipation of the doom of Satan. We don't have time to get into the further details. Perhaps if, you have, if you're interested, we can do that in the cell groups. And we see the doom of Satan and then the establishment of the kingdom as an anticipation. Very quickly, let me just run through the rest of the chapters so you get one overall picture, but we'll only do chapters 1 through 12, which we did for this week. In chapter 13, we are given the description of two beasts. One beast comes out of the sea, the other beast comes out of the earth. Okay, So these are known for their nefarious activities. This, uh, the next chapter, chapter 14, is more of anticipatory chapter. It talks about the blessings and the catastrophes that are associated with the time period of the book later. Blessings and the catastrophes that come in the later part of the book. And after the explanatory prophecies uh, of the judgment of the seven bowls, I'm sorry, the judgment of the seven uh, trumpets, you have the judgment of the seven bowls that are coming up, the last bowls, and it leads us right into the coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. So these are the last judgments, and that's why they call the seven plagues, which will finish the wrath of God upon the whole earth. And there is no gap or interlude between the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl, as we had with the seals and the trumpets. They're all given in one swift flow. That leads us to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once the wrath of God is poured out on the entire earth, that leads us to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John says this. I want to give you further information, says John. I want to give you further information by talking about two cities, says John. There is Babylon and there is New Jerusalem. There is Babylon in chapter 17 and there is New Jerusalem in chapter 21. Babylon is a city where evil is entrenched very deep, both in its religion and in its politics, its commerce, it's entrenched very deep. You can't even think of it. It's such a bad, evil system that's been existing. And it's all related to the one that we've been talking about. He is the Antichrist. That's chapter 17 and 18. But on the other hand, in chapter 21, you have the new Jerusalem. It's glorious. It's beautiful. The Messiah is the one who reigns there. And between these two chapters of Babylon and New Jerusalem, in chapter 19, there is the coming of Christ. There is the coming of Christ. What is this? Christ has to come for things to move from Babylon to New Jerusalem. You and I, by our own power, can never bring down New Jerusalem. It is Christ who must come and establish his kingdom. And when he comes, he will defeat the greatest opposition of power that the world has ever seen. So here is the message once again. No matter how dreary things are, no matter how discouraging things could get, no matter who is rising up to power, it could be the Antichrist as well. No matter how much persecution we may have to endure, Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will change everything. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will change everything. And here is how it's all going to unfold. Jesus comes, he defeats Satan, and then he binds them for a thousand years. 
It's called the Menelian range. Satan is bound, and after that, Satan is released again. He goes to uh, he goes to deceive the nations and has a rebellion once again. And finally, uh, after the millennial kingdom, the eternal state comes, where you have the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. But before that, there is the great white throne of Christ. So we finally come to the eternal state in chapter twenty-two, and the epilogue closes by saying, "He who testifies to these things." says surely i'm coming soon amen come lord jesus amen come lord jesus so i hope even if you didn't get the entire picture of it i hope you got uh, enough of a picture for you to go back and study and see the sequence and understand the other chapters as you see the chronological backbone in terms of the judgments that move forward very quickly applications number 1 jesus knows our churches My dear brothers and sisters listen to me very carefully please Jesus knows each and every church in this world Jesus knows CBF very well He knows his churches intimately because he's the one whose eyes are blazing like fire He's the one who searches hearts and minds He's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands supremely authoritatively because he's the one who bought the churches with his own blood he knows everything about them and that's why he says again five times he says this i know your deeds i know your deeds god knows the deeds of cbf jesus knows what each and every one does he knows what's in our hearts as well and that's why he makes statements like these i know your hard work and your perseverance i know your affliction and your poverty i know where you live i know your love your faith and your service i know your reputation i know your opportunities but he also says i know your lukewarm complacency my dear brothers and sisters this jesus who is the lord of our church is asking us to display in greater measure a few marks that are given in chapters 2 and 3 number 1 a love for him and willingness to suffer for him number 2 truth of doctrine and greater holiness in our lives going together and number 3 sincerity and wholeheartedness in everything that we do he knows his church jesus knows his church lastly the theme of the book jesus is coming and when he comes he will change everything jesus is coming and when he comes he will change everything raven there's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine and Russia doesn't seem to relent there's a political turmoil happening in Pakistan right now this morning he was removed as the prime minister Imran Khan was there's an economic crisis going on in Sri Lanka there's a threat of the fourth wave of covid raven what are you talking about my dear brothers and sisters let me remind you this no matter how dreary things look no matter how discouraging things might get no matter who is winning the elections or not no matter who comes to power no matter how much of persecution you and i may have to endure remember this jesus is coming and when he comes he will change everything jesus is coming and when he comes he will change everything and that's the hope that we have and that's what we look forward to thank you for your patience i know it's been a tough session it was for me too uh thank you for your patience and your prayers let's pray with the expectation that jesus is coming and when he comes he will change everything father we we want to thank you for the hope that we have in christ jesus the blessed hope that the new testament talks about thank you for giving us this uh, brief exposition of the book of revelation lord and giving us the hearts and the minds to be able to understand your holy scripture it's tough but because of your grace we're able to grasp some little truths from your scripture lord help us always to strive forward in the hope that we've been given in the return of the lord jesus christ help us to live holy lives and no matter what comes our way o oh lord no matter how discouraging things might get around us help us always to live in light of the expectation that jesus is coming and when he comes he will change everything thank you lord for such a hope in jesus name